Hi there. Welcome, welcome to the Woman Inspired Podcast. I'm so glad you could join me today. I'd appreciate it if you want to hop on out to womaninspired.com. W-O-M-A-N. W-O-M. Yeah. W-O-M. <laughs> I do know how to spell <clears throat> most days. W-O-M-A-N-I-N-S-P-I-R-E-D dot com. Womaninspired.com. That's my website. And let me know you visited. There's a contact button there. You can shoot me a note, a message, an inquiry if you'd like me to speak at your next conference or retreat. And of course, you will find my social media links right down at the bottom of the page. Also some links to some silly things and uh, my books that are published, those sort of things. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Oh, and did I say that I'm Karen? (laughs) Because I'm not sure that I did, but I am. Last I checked, uh, in case you're new here, I thought I best tell you that. All right. This podcast is part of woman inspired ministries, and it's just one of the things that I do on this journey that God has me (laughs) on. Uh, again, if you're interested in all the other things, just go to womaninspired.com. Okay. Today's episode is titled, you are not your sin. Let's start out as always with some pod quotes. I'll give you a second to get your pen and paper ready or your thumbs warmed up so you can jot those quotes down. Time's up. All right. You are not your sin, your failures, or your past. You are who God says you are in Christ. That's by James McDonald. You are not your sin, your failures, or your past. You are who God says you are in Christ. And St. John said, be ashamed when you sin, not when you repent. I love that. We forget that, don't we? Sometimes the world tells us we should be ashamed when we're tempted and ashamed when we repent. And that's not truth. That's just opposite of that. Be ashamed when you sin, not when you repent. And we are all tempted. Okay, so we're going to jump right in. In case you aren't familiar or just weren't tuning in before, last year I wrote a book called Woman Stand Firm. And it's about gaining your identity in Christ instead of in the world and pretty much about being who you were born to be as a child of God. It's also about embracing all the unique unique things about yourself and not trying to change yourself according to what the world's standards are. It's really about understanding that you don't need to label yourself. You don't need to identify yourself the way the world says you do uh, as anything except really except for saying that you belong to the Lord. That's it. That's the only label you need. That's the only who, what, where, when, why, and how that you need in order to walk through this world. And when you label yourself as belonging to the Lord, then it fills in all of the who, what, where, when, why, and how, no matter what stage of life you're in. It just does. And when you have a relationship with God, you understand that no matter what comes your way at whatever age and what interval, no matter the changes that go on around you or in your relationships or with your body or anything, uh, that you have him and that he has a purpose for you. Uh, You may not always know exactly what it is one season to the next, but he will show you that's what a relationship with God does for you. So you understand this more and more as you grow and you, and you understand that you don't have to do what the world says or be who they say you should be. And frankly, the world likes to identify us by our actions and especially by our sins. They want to label us. So instead of by knowing who you are and whose you are, they want to tell you what you should be. And if you're not that, 
well, you're in trouble, according to the world, according to evil. You don't have to have your standards be in alignment with the world's statements, though. You don't have to put a filter over your face on social media to be on social media or worry about how many likes you get and whether or not you're popular at work or school or be concerned about what expectations this person has or that person has of you because the greatest expectation is the expectation that God has for you and that he has for your life and for your purpose and for your gifts and your talents. And I also shared in this book about using your armor, specifically using the armor of God that's lined out for us in Ephesians um, to help protect your identity. Specifically, it helps you stand firm. Like the scripture from 1 Corinthians sixteen thirteen tells us when it says, be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. But we live in a world that even more so now than, than just six months ago, that keeps trying to tell us that who we are and what we should be is not okay. And that if we're not who the world says we should be or who the majority at large and, and sometimes even who the minority says we should be, then we're bad. We're wrong. We're horrible people. If we aren't succumbing to the popular opinion of what is culturally specific right now, what is beautiful, what is honorable, what is fair to them, well, then we're like dirt beneath their feet. If we aren't doing what the world says we should or being who they say, well, then we are nothing. We have little to no value. In fact, not just little to no value, we are horrible, horrible human beings. Woman Stand Firm, it came out last September and praise God, it went to the number one best-selling on Amazon for Christian living. And in fact, it went to number one in two different categories and was on the hot new release list for that week. But I feel a little weighted down with the fact that it's not gone much of anywhere since then. I can't say nowhere because people are still reading it. Um, but to me, it's an extremely important message and not just important for people who aren't Christians. It's not just important for the people who, who don't even know the Lord but people who know the Lord. It's not just for people who have rejected Jesus or the idea of Jesus because maybe they've been hurt by churches and hurt by the idea of religion and are now confused or deceived because there are definitely those people out there. And this book would be great for them as well. But no, I have come to realize that, and maybe in some ways, the message in that book is even more so for people who call themselves Christians because there's a huge trend in churches now. And I can't necessarily say it's a new trend. It's just more prevalent. And it's not necessarily in the body of Christ, because if you actually belong to the Lord, you will reject what some of these churches and denominations and individual rogue pastors are telling people, the lies that some of them are spreading, <clears throat> that they're perpetuating, uh, which are worldly ideas and judgment. It's not every church not every denomination, not every pastor. There are churches in the body of Christ that are at least being led by people who truly preach the word as it was written. And there are people who, who mean well. There are people who mean well. And let me just say that people who are in ministry, including pastors, missionaries, teachers, preachers, podcasters, bloggers, all kinds of people in ministry are imperfect. And so sometimes they will misquote something or they will say something that is skewed or maybe even in a way that sets it up to be taken the wrong way. Though they're held to a higher standard, even people in ministry can make mistakes and hopefully they grow, they learn, they can admit and they can correct themselves because none of us is perfect. So we can't 
sit and be on a quest to pick apart everything that a pastor says or that a missionary says or somebody who's ministering to other people because they are going to make mistakes because they are human. So that is not the intent of this podcast. But sometimes we don't mean to say something the wrong way or we misquote something or inadvertently become a stumbling block to someone else because we become hyper-focused on one aspect of the word because it hits us personally in a particular way, or we hyper-focus on a collective sin issue or a political issue, and we stand hard on the word of God to rebuff those bad beliefs that the world has about it. And sometimes we stand too hard, not firmly necessarily, but too hard in our own opinions, and it skews the way we project the word. We become jaded, but anyone who shares the word, especially a pastor or preacher is still held to a higher standard. And that's the way it is. That's the way it should be. And yet we have to remember, which is what I'm doing right now by vocalizing it, that none of us is perfect. That being said, there are more and more people in ministry today who for effect and for their own cause and for a cause that they believe is a Christ-like cause, get on a bandwagon or a soapbox while they are at the altar and preach something that does not totally align with the word of God. I've talked about this before in reference to the fact that there is, is this thing called personal responsibility, your personal, spiritual, intellectual, human responsibility to know the word of God for yourself. And if you don't know it, have it handy, ready for you when you need to get a hold of it. So you can get to know the word, to get to know the truth for yourself so that you are not deceived by anyone purposely trying to deceive you or inadvertently trying to deceive you or inadvertently, shall I say, inadvertently deceiving you. I, I don't know the Bible from front to back anymore because my memory is not as good as it used to be. And I think a lot of people can say that, but I used to have a near photographic memory. However, seizures and a brain aneurysm change the way my brain memorizes things. However, my discernment still tells me when something is askew because I have a relationship with the Lord, because I have the Holy Spirit within me. And so if I don't have the answer in the moment, but my discernment tells me something is off and I don't know the scripture or I'm in doubt, I know I can pick it up and research it. I can read the Bible. When my spiritual alarm bells go off, I pay attention. That's what discernment is for. And that's why we have to keep in good relationship with the Lord. That's why we have to be in the word, reading it, knowing the word, knowing God's character so that we're not deceived. And if we hear or see something that doesn't match up to the word of God, then we know for ourselves. I hope you do that with my podcast. If something sounds uh, amiss or askew, you get into the word and, and, and you dig into it and you go, whoa, wait a minute. Oh, hey, maybe she didn't mean it that way or she meant it this way and I didn't get it. Or wait a minute, she was wrong, whatever the case may be, because I'm not perfect either. I am so personally thankful, though, that someone taught me this truth years ago because recently I heard a sermon where I definitely needed to be able to distinguish real from fake, the truth from a lie. Something that was accurately quoted, but skewed to make someone else's point for cause and effect. It's obvious to me and several other people who heard the message that this person is passionate about a certain subject and about a certain sin and about making sure that that sin can no longer happen in society today. 
And that's not possible because we can't control other people's actions, although we can talk to them about it. And I'm not going to go into great detail uh, because even though it is dealing with sin and morality, it is also something political. And this is not a political podcast. It's not something that I want to go into detail about as far as what sin they were talking about and detract from what I'm trying to say, because the sin is not the point. Okay, because what I'm trying to say is what God put on my heart very emphatically after hearing this sermon was to remind everyone that you are not your sin. You are not your sin. You can call out a sin and you can label it. But if you label a person that sin, then you are wrong. You are not your sin. I am not my sin. I talked about my my book, Woman Stand Firm, to begin with just a few minutes ago, because that was to set this up. That what I wrote in that book is just as relevant and more so relevant now than it was six months ago. Maybe more so because the labels are getting greater and the labels are becoming more extreme inside the church and outside the church. They're coming not just from the world and evil spirits perpetuating them, but also from pulpits. People are using the word of God to label people and to say that it's okay to label them. In this particular sermon that I heard, that sparked all of this, the pastor was talking about sin. And he was talking again about a specific sin that he finds horrendous and horrible. Frankly, all sin is horrendous and horrible. It doesn't matter what it is, even though in our human minds, we grade sin from least offensive to most offensive, don't we? I mean, and depending on who we are, and how we were raised and what culture we were educated in, and what religion we were raised under in the first place, that's how we grade sin. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe one person was raised believing that lying is no big deal as long as there's justification for it. So lying to them is no big deal. But another person was lied to so egregiously and it caused so many problems in their life and opened so many wounds that a lie is like a number 10 on a scale of 1 to 10 for them. Someone else might find sexual sin no big deal because they saw it a lot in their family. And it became the norm from for them from generation to generation in their family. And they don't want to condemn their family. So it's what they've always seen. So it's no big deal to them. And yet someone else who has been drastically hurt by sexual sin or maybe even never experienced sexual sin and is disgusted by sexual things altogether believes that sexual sin is a solid number 10 on a scale of 1 to 10. 10 being the worst sin possible. <clears throat> Sorry. 10 being the worst sin possible. A little catch in my throat there. Anyhow, this particular par- pastor who shared this message, I believe he had an issue with a particular sin that he was preaching about. And in his state of mind, he used scripture to state that if you sin in that particular way, even though this sin didn't have anything to do with the scripture he was quoting, that your sinful action made you a devil worshiper. He used the scripture in John eight forty two through 50, which I'll go over in a second. And he quoted the scripture in order to state that if you commit sin, you were doing so as a form of worship to the devil and that Satan was your father. I watched even further into the sermon for him to say that if you committed this particular sin, that this was the case, but also that if you committed sin in any way whatsoever, that meant that you were choosing Satan and Satan is your father. But he was even more so emphatic about this particular sin that he was preaching about. Again, the sin and what he was talking about, not the point. The scripture and what he was saying and the label he was making is the point. He was talking about someone being a child of Satan when they sin and worshiping Satan through their sin. 
Now, it took everything I had to listen further because I wanted to make sure that I listened to what the man was actually trying to say, not just if I jumped to a conclusion. And what I thought he was trying to say is exactly what he was saying. Now, he did have a caveat in there, and the caveat was biblical. If you sin, even in the most egregious way, and in a way that he thought was the worst there ever could be, there is still forgiveness for you. There is grace for you. So if you go to the Lord and you confess and you accept the Lord after and, and confess and repent, you will be forgiven. I agree with that part. However, he still continued to back up what he said by using scripture in John 8, which I will again go over in a second. But he continued to use that particular scripture, scripture to validate his own findings and feelings that if you sin, then Satan is your father. Now, how do you switch fathers? That that's something I was asking myself. I guess because we can be adopted into adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ, he considers that Satan is our father if we sin. Now, I will tell you this, I belong to the Lord. God the heavenly father is my heavenly father. Jesus Christ is my savior. He's my Messiah. The Holy Spirit is my comforter. Yet I am still a sinner. I'm not perfect. So, how can God, our heavenly father, be my father if when I sin, Satan is then my father. You don't get to switch fathers back and forth. That's not the way it works. When you belong to our Heavenly Father, you belong to Him. The verse he referenced in John is where Jesus is addressing those who do not know Him and won't acknowledge that He is the Messiah. And He tells them that if they know the Father, then they would know Him because He and the Father are as one and the Father is in Him. And if they do not recognize him as the Holy One, then their father must surely be Satan instead of our Heavenly Father. So this particular sermon used the word to validate someone else's personal feelings about sin. And in the processed process, it was used to label people who are sinners as children of Satan. And that is not correct. The Bible does not say that if you sin, and especially if you commit a certain type of sin, that you are a child of Satan. First John 3, 9 does say in the New Living Trans Translation that those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. Not wanting to solely trust my own memory on the subject, I researched this verse as well. In several places, it talks about how John is not saying that we have to be perfect because we cannot be. I found the most concise explanation at BibleReference.com. So what does 1 John 3, 9 mean when I just said that, that those who have been born into God's family do not practice, make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them? John continues his teaching on the topic of those who continue in sin. This is most often interpreted as a warning that such people are not believers. While this seems to agree with the general sense of Scripture, that if you believed you would not sin, John's advice here is actually being targeted specifically at believers. In particular, that there's no excuse for sin in the life of a believer. In other words, we know better. Grace is not a license to sin. Those who sin without remorse, without conviction or change have no relationship with Christ. But even a saved Christian has to choose good over evil. And in this verse, the emphasis is on the one born of God, 
God lives in the believer and the believer can therefore no longer live the same life as prior to becoming God's child. Though believers do continue to sin, they will be changed more into the likeness of Christ as they grow in the Lord. God's children are expected to reflect his characteristics to some degree at at minimal. Again, the emphasis is not on perfection, but likeness of Christ. An unchanged person is not a true believer. A true believer cannot help but live differently because God lives within them. That does not mean that we're required, nor can we live perfectly. But before I knew the Lord, before I belonged to the Lord, sin was nothing to me. Sin, I didn't think about sin. I kind of knew right from wrong. I'd heard this and that, but until I truly knew the Lord... I didn't have conviction of the heart. I didn't think of sin as sin. Does that make sense? So one of the things that bothered me so much about the words and sentiment used in this message that I heard, besides the fact that he was labeling people, is that obviously the fact that he was twisting the word of God, and I still still may be wrong, but I believe it was obvious, at least to me, that this man has some sort of a past with this particular type of sin, or it has hurt him on a personal level in some way. Not that he necessarily committed that sin, but perhaps in some way, the effect of that sin, maybe someone else committed it and it has affected him, or he had to deal with it personally on some level. So to me, it seems like it was a very personal thing that he wrapped his feelings around, making this sadly prevalent sin, and it is a prevalent sin in our society to be the most egregious thing on a scale of one to 10 to him, uh, that being a 10, but not only that sentiment, but also the fact that they're sitting in the midst of this pastor were hundreds of people and who knows how many others watching the sermon online that he labeled as children of Satan in that one moment that they may have sinned, be it that day the day before or weeks or years before, no matter their repentance, no matter their love of God's sense, no matter the circumstances under which they chose that sin, he emphatically, with no mention of forgiveness for a good 10 minutes, stated that Satan was their father. Maybe they only committed this sin once ever in their life, which is very likely. Didn't matter. With one, with one lash of his tongue, he seemingly condemned them. With again, eventually, eventually a caveat saying, yes, you too can be forgiven, but coming out more than likely for cause and effect with a damning amount of labeling up to that point saying, if you have sinned this way, you have worshiped Satan. You have sinned as such and you call Satan your father. In a world where people who have been there, done that, sinned and worked through it, confessed their sins, gone to the Lord and walked away from those sins to sin no more. To then have someone come back and condemn them with a, when you sinned, even though you may be forgiven now, you are a child of Satan is the exact reason so many people do not go to church. It's the same reason that many people reject the truth of God's word and who Jesus Christ is because they get condemnation from human beings. Messages like this, are the reason that so many people do not come forward for prayer or seek help for their issues. And let me put it this way. If you have a congregation of 300 people sitting in front of you and statistics hold true, then right in front of you, 
38 out of every 100 people is either a current addict or a recovering addict from drugs or alcohol. 11 out of every 100 men in that 300 people are addicted to pornography. 73% of all of the teenagers have been uh, viewing porn at least once in the, in the past month and 43% on a regular basis. One out of every four women in there and one out of every four women in the entire United States, regardless of socioeconomic factors and race, have had an abortion, many of them more than one. 21% of all marriages have had one or both spouses commit adultery. And you get up and you tell this congregation that if you sin, and when you sin, especially a certain sin, but really all sin, it means that you are worshiping Satan and he is your father then what you have just done is take a bunch of hurting people who may not know how to confess what they are doing or how to get out of what the position that they're in and you have pushed them back even further into themselves and in, into fear instead of allowing them to reach out for help. Because what helps other people is seeing other people who have been addicted come through it and walk in recovery. That's where things like Celebrate Recovery and other programs where someone who's been there and done it, but walked in recovery and is walking in recovery. Someone who's repentant, not living for the next drug, alcohol, or sexual high. That's why they are so effective at helping someone else who is in the middle of that sin that they just can't seem to get free from. When you let people know up front that there's forgiveness and help rather than condemnation first, rather than name calling and labeling first, then you are more uh, able to offer an, an avenue for them to come forward. You are, are, are allowing them to more readily be able to give their sin over to the Lord and to accept the Lord and learn to walk a life of recovery and victory. But you have to let them know that they are not their sin. Because there is compassion, because there's understanding, because there are examples of victory, real life people who walk in victory. There is hope. Never would you go to any type of help center, recovery program, hospital, crisis pregnancy center, or counseling center, Christian or not, and hear them say, oh, everything will be all right. We'll help you. You're all right. However, because you've done these things, you are worshiping Satan and you have made Satan your father. No, they wouldn't do that because number one, it's not true. And number two, it's not going to help them. Do you give in to Satan? And his temptations when you sin? Yes, you do, because he is the father of sin, the father of lies, and he has created all kinds of desirable things that humans find themselves wanting, but are outside what our Heavenly Father desires for us. But that is not the same as making Satan your father. So what I want to caution you with is, is first of all, that labels are dangerous. And especially if they're coming from the pulpit, a place of authority and a place where spiritual wisdom and truth should emanate from. Let's look more closely at the scripture from John that we're talking about, because Jesus is actually talking about belief in this scripture, not sin. We can see where the Lord can say, as, as we hear often, either you're for me or you're against me. You're either with me or you're not. You're either with the good or with the bad. You're either for Christianity or you're against Christianity. You're either for the Lord or you're for the devil. We could see that. But if you go back to the beginning of John chapter eight, <clears throat> before this quoted scripture, 
in this sermon, you will see that the whole scenario starts off with the famous exchange between Jesus and the woman who was an adulterer and where Jesus told the people who were going to stone her, you without sin cast the first stone. It says in verse eight, in eight, one, Jesus returned, or yes, eight, one, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers now? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus did not condemn this woman when she faced him. He did not say to her, You have sinned, you have chosen Satan as your father, and you have worshipped him with your sin. No, he forgave her and told her to go and sin no more. Further on in John 8, starting at verse 12, it says, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. But the Pharisees refuted this and said Jesus's testimony wasn't valid. And that's when Jesus let them know that they knew his that they knew his testimony about who he was. They already knew that he testified who he was, um, as well as that of the Father in heaven. So they knew of these two because Jesus came as a representative of the Father, who was with him always. This was the setup to the scripture used in the sermon I heard, and yet this part was not used. I also find it interesting that in verse nine of chapter eight, that Jesus also said this, where is your father? They asked. And Jesus answered, since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my father is. If you knew me, you would also know my father. This tells my little human brain that if a human being doesn't know who, who Jesus is, then he or she truly doesn't know who the heavenly father is and doesn't know who their creator, their own heavenly father is. If you don't know the father, then you cannot know him. You won't recognize who Jesus is and you cannot abide in him. You definitely won't know who you truly are either. You will only be what the world tells you that you are or what evil says you are. Without knowing him, you will live out whatever label is placed upon you or that you take up for yourself. But on top of that, I realize here in the way that Jesus said this, that those people who have sinned, who do not know God, more than likely do not know Satan either. Those who do not believe in God do not usually believe in Satan either. They are deceived into believing that neither is real. Does the deceit come from Satan? Does it stem from evil? Yes, it does. But that doesn't mean that many people recognize it. That's where we, we who know are supposed to share with others in a way that others will understand and not run from in a way that illuminates the truth, not in a way that pushes them back into darkness and condemns them. 
Those who do not know that light exists and have always lived out their lives in what many of us know as darkness will not know the difference. They will not know who Satan is. So they are not choosing to worship Satan. But in their not knowing, that means they have made a conscious decision to do what they have come to know in their lifetime. They're walking out what they've known to live the way they have come to know how to live. Is that sinful? Yes, it is. Because it's not choosing God. Is that a conscious, willful decision to worship Satan and a reason to be called a child of Satan? No. And again, see where the adulterous woman has sinned? Jesus does not call her a child of Satan. He admonishes her, but he forgives her. He saves her from stoning and he saves her eternally. Do those who live in the darkness, unable to see that Satan is the ruler of darkness, need to be shown the light? Absolutely. But that's our job. Because I contend that if you go to someone who has only known the darkness or is at the very least in a dark place, and you try to stand in front of them, pointing out their darkness and say to them, look, look, look how dark it is. Look what you have done. Can you see? Can you see? Will they be able to see? Will they be able to distinguish in, in, in what you're even trying to show them when they're in the middle of darkness? No, they won't because it's dark. No, they need the light in order to see not someone merely pointing out the darkness that has enveloped them. Here's what I have to say <clears throat> that I align with a part of, of the message that I was talking about. Sin is wrong. I agree. Sin is not simply making bad choices or mistakes. Sin is having the desire in our hearts to do the will of the enemy of God. But even if we don't understand it is the will of Satan, we're, it is still a sin. Ignorance doesn't suddenly make sins null and void. The only thing that can take away the sting and pain and conviction of sin is Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said something about this in reference to sin. And I'm going to read that to you because especially for those of us who do know right from wrong, who know what a sin is and yet in a lapse of self-control or selfishness or fear, we choose to sin. In the midst of temptation, we choose that desire over following God. Then we have indeed chosen to fall for the enemy's tricks. When the devil shoots his arrows of temptation at us, they go straight to the heart, which is weak, and our desires can take over. This is why it's so important to follow God, to know his word, and stay strong on the path that God has led you down. But Charles Spurgeon said this about it. In the deceit of sin lies our main danger. If sin comes to us as sin, we are swift to hate it and strong to repel it by the grace of God. When we are walking with God, we only need to know that an action is forbidden and straight away we avoid it. We identify it. We shun the evil thing when it's plainly evil. But sin puts on another dress and comes to us speaking a language which is not its own. And so even those who would avoid sin as sin may by degrees be tempted to evil and deluded into doing wrong. You see, this is the crux of most sin. It comes to us as a delusion or an illusion, one that we oftentimes readily embrace. We see what is unreal, what is fake, and we believe it to be true. 
We see something packaged wonderfully, and even though we have a niggling feeling inside that warns us, no, don't go down that path, don't choose that thing, when we aren't strong in the Lord and we're not prayed up, covered by His grace and discerning, then we can still be deceived and deluded into choosing the wrong thing. And it is solely, totally, 100% on each of us to make sure that we are in the Word in God, prayed up, armored up, seeking him every single day so we do not become deluded. Does that mean you're worshiping Satan and he is your father if you do sin? No, it does not. So please, if you have been told that because you committed a sin, because you fell for the tricks of temptation, because you chose to veer off the path that God had laid out for you, that you are of Satan, or as some others have preached, that redemption is not yours because of it, do not believe it. Search the word for yourself. Seek God in your prayers for him to show you who you are to him. And remember that while he will bring conviction on you when you step out of line and he does command that we repent, that we turn away from the bad and the worldly, the evil and, and work to sin no more. He offers us a type of grace that no one else can. He offers a comfort and a light that will flood that darkness with truth. Not just man's vision or a vision is telling of it, but real truth through Jesus Christ. You know, I could say at this point, far be it for me to tell someone else how to preach. But you know what? I'm pretty well qualified for that at this point in my life. I'm not perfect. And by no means have I ever given a perfect speech, a perfect message, a perfect sermon, if you will. But I am sitting here as one who has listened to many, many sermons, many Sunday morning messages, and I can tell you what is received well and what is not received well. I can tell you how a message, even a worth, wordsmithed, perfectly laid out, grammatically correct, well-quoted speech, delivered incorrectly can hurt rather than heal. It can turn people away from the Lord rather than to embrace the Lord. I'm not talking about getting up and giving a sermon that is false or saying happy flowery things for itching ears and, 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 and bodies to make people happy in something that's just entertaining. I'm not saying we have to, that I'm not even talking about that. We need to absolutely 100% have truth, truth, truth. That is what needs to be given, truth. That's what must be preached. But we need to see Jesus' examples in the Bible of how to reach people. It needs to be done with parables, with real-life explanations, sharing experiences and storytelling so that there's imagery and people are able to grasp the point. What does not need to be done with his word is a message that comes out of pure hellfire and brimstone or twisting the word because none of those things work. People are deceived every single day in this world. Anymore, it's hard to tell what's real and what's fake. And we don't need that in the church. And even more so, what is right in front of them could be something that they desperately need to know is right from wrong. And in a world that is claiming that good is bad and bad is good, it is up to every single believer out there to shine a light and be an example of what real truth is in and out of the pulpit. I have met so many adults over the years who have made decisions for Jesus out of fear, out of straight up fear and twisted scripture. And when someone makes a decision for the Lord out of fear, out of hell and fire being cast upon their heads by another human being, that is not from conviction of the Holy Spirit of the Lord, but by fire from a human person's mouth, 
it's like someone just standing up and throwing firebombs at them. And that decision that they make is so often regretted later. And the decision made in a moment of fear is often not lived out. It does not typically lead to a life of recovery or a life of true repentance or a life of drawing closer to the Lord. It leads to a life of resentment. And here's the thing. When we judge other people because they have sinned in a way that we find horrendous and egregious, let me just tell you, it's normal. It's normal. Should we do it? No, we shouldn't. It's hard not to do, don't you think? We can get disgusted or get angry and not want anything to do with people. Now, we should definitely not be a party to their sin, and there are some people we should cut out of our lives. We should definitely not glorify their sin, and if God leads you not to have anything to do with them, cut them out of your life, then do it just do it. We should definitely hold other people accountable though. If we're in their sphere of inner influence, it is our job as a brother and sister in Christ to say, Hey, you do, you're doing this. Do you, do you know what you're doing? Do, do you see what you're doing? This isn't right. Yeah. As uncomfortable as it is, that is part of our job. That's not judgment. That's accountability. But it is not our job to look at someone that we don't know or that we don't know well and hold them up to some great or greater scale of judgment than we even hold ourselves up to because we all sin. And it's not our job to label somebody and say they're no good or they'll never be good or they'll never be good enough because that's not up to us either. If I don't agree with the way that you're living, if you're someone that God has put on my heart to hold accountable and to talk to you about it, then I'm going to do it. I'm not one of those people that says, hey, I'm good. You do you. And, and as long as you're not harming me, I don't care. I'm not one of those people that says, do whatever you want, whatever makes you happy. Because no, just no. If what you're doing that makes you so happy is not good for you or for anyone else, and I love you and God has put you on my heart to tell you about it, then I'm going to tell you about it. I'm not going to help hold you uh, or I am going to help hold you. I'm going to help hold you accountable. And I expect people to do the same with me. You don't have to slam it in someone's face and be rude and be mean. In fact, if you do that, you're liable to get hit <laughs> or ostracized. And that's not going to help them either. It won't help you either. You should do it with love. And if you can't do it with love, then you shouldn't do it at all. You should do it with the love of the Lord, with the love of a brother or sister in mind, and the care for another human being. If you can't do it with that, then it's probably not your place to do it. But judging someone else's sin as if they are worse than anybody else or labeling them as a, labeling them as a Satan follower because they sin is not going to help them either. And it's wrong unless they actually are a Satan follower. And that's a whole different story. All right. So you will see, though, with the explosion of social media, that more and more judgment has come from people of all walks of life, targeting all other kinds of people in the world. It's everywhere. It's epidemic. When someone judges you for your sins, they might not know where you were or how you felt or what you knew and what you didn't know at the time you sinned. They will not know whether or not you knew God or didn't know God when you were committing an act they found and, and find nearly unforgivable. But God knows Jesus knows. So to label someone is to put them in a box. And sometimes they may already be in a box. And when you label them, you judge them. You tell them that you know what they were when they sinned. And you surmise that you understand, 
even when more than likely you do not understand, then you have just pushed them back into that box. While there is no justification for sin, there's no excuse for sin, there are reasons that some people sin. There are reasons why we all sin. Sure, that reason could be selfishness. It could be out of worldliness. It could be out of siding with Satan and choosing Satan. Absolutely. But many times it's out of confusion, out of fear, out of being mistaught, out of not being taught, and, and sometimes out of not knowing the difference. And certainly out of not knowing God or having a real relationship with Jesus. So then to label someone as, as this pastor did is to understand that many of these people, when they have sinned, because of their shame, have put themselves in a box. I did that. And then to heap what some what comes across as, as condemnation at them is then cl to close the lid on that box and nail it shut for many of them. To then a few minutes later yell, but God will forgive you, hoping that they'll come out of the box. So I caution you today in this podcast that if you're trying to hold someone else accountable. Please remember that they are not their sin, just like you are not your sin. Don't do as the world does and hold someone's sin up to them as a picture of darkness saying, oh, look at the darkness, but rather hold up the light that is in you, the light of Jesus Christ. Give accountability first and foremost with the absolute truth that Jesus saves and then do it with the kindness and love that comes from a compassionate heart that wants to correct and love and do it without the judgment. Do it with boldness in your words and in your actions. You can do it with, with attentiveness and bluntness, but you don't have to do it with aggression. And you don't have to do it by twisting the word of God for cause and effect because God's word is enough. It just is. It's already enough. In fact, you should try not to do it unless you're going to do it full on 100% with truth. Because one day, like I did, someone who heard or hears the word of God being twisted is going to look it up and they're going to find out that they were lied to. And they just may go, oh, oh yeah, see how those Christians are? They're radical. They lie. They even use the word of God to make a point, whatever point they want to make, even if it's not the way the word was intended. Have we heard that before? Yeah, we have. Those kinds of things create a stumbling block for other people on their journey and turn them away from the Lord rather than turning towards the Lord. And I have no doubt that the message I heard was intended from the heart to be taken as a message that would point someone sitting in their sin straight out of their darkness and into the light. But I also have no doubt that it made more people feel like they were being labeled, judged and pushed back into a box of darkness and shame instead. Paul said in Romans seven twenty, now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He did not say that it is Satan in him, but sin in him. He also said in Romans six eleven. so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, we're supposed to have the mindset of being alive in Christ instead of focusing on sin. Paul is not saying we are no longer responsible for our actions and our sin. No, he's saying the truth of the matter in direct reference to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and who we are in relation to God, that the sinner is accepted by God as not being a sinner, meaning that though we have sinned, we who belong to him are redeemed and seen through the eyes of Christ. 
as forgiven. And he reiterates that in Romans 8, 1, where he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We don't want people in darkness. We want them in light. And the only way to do that is to shine the light, not to point out their darkness. The only way to do that is to tell them who you are is what matters and not what you did. Who you are is what matters, not your past, not the sins that you committed. What you're doing today, that matters. Not what the world says you are, but what God says you are, what God says you are, who God says you are, what the word of the Lord says, not individual people. That's what matters. Even, even, even well-meaning people, sometimes they get it wrong. And as we all know, as ill-meaning as some other people are, those are not the words that we should listen to. Those are not the things that we should take to heart. And those are not the things that we should be saying to other people. And as I wrap this up, I want to say that there's another aspect to this that, that I've come to embrace. Because it says in the Bible that our Heavenly Father knows us by name. He knows you by name. He knows me by name. He knows all of our ways. Psalm 139.1 says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. He knows you by name and he calls you by your name. Not by the sins you have committed, nor by the labels of the world, nor as a child of Satan. Satan knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. And he used that, uses that sin to taunt you. God knows your sin but he calls you by your name because he knows you. You are his. A father calls his children by their name. Isaiah 43, one says, But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. O Israel, the one who formed you says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Woman Inspired Podcast. I hope you have a blessed week.